Hello, I'm Zeb Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, our focus today is uh, on counting what counts in healthcare, on uh, healthcare analytics, and uh, we are incredibly fortunate to have uh, a guest on the show, Len DiVolio. Len uh, has a doctorate degree from UCLA in biomedical informatics. He's spent the last 13 years working to reframe and transform healthcare into a learning healthcare system, and we're definitely going to ask him more about that, what he means by that. Uh, over the past few years, he's uh, been uh, deeply entrenched in the Harvard system and currently left academia to start and co-found a company called SIFT, that's C-Y-F-T, SIFT, an organization that uses data and artificial intelligence to make value-based care wildly successful. Dr. DiVolio is an assistant professor uh, at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and at the Harvard Medical School. He's an advisor to the Helmsley Charitable Trust Foundation as well as an advisor to several several uh, healthcare startups. Uh, Len has worked very closely with Dr. Atul Gawande, um, and uh, he worked at Ariadne Labs, uh, helping to improve childbirth across 70 clinics in India, which was one of his uh, significant projects there. He's also created an infrastructure for uh, one of the world's largest genomic medicine cohorts, and uh, prior to that, he was at the Veteran Affairs and actually embedded the first clinical trial within an electronic medical record system. And this is all cutting edge work that he's applied to healthcare. So although he's got an, a, a remarkably strong academic background, he's also remarkably ac accomplished in deploying artificial intelligence uh, in the real world and out in the field. Now, I have to tell you, I've had the pleasure of getting to know Len over the past couple of years through another friend and colleague, Bob Tavares. And Bob, if you're out there listening, I just want to call you out, give you a special shout out. I'm so grateful to you for introducing me to Len. Uh, and folks, as you'll discover, Len has a remarkable depth of knowledge and wisdom in addition to his technical expertise. Uh, what I'm especially appreciative of, though, is Len's integrity and his authenticity. It really comes through uh, you'll hear it. Um, it's inspiring, refreshing to hear him speak. And I would suggest that if you are interested, um, after you listen to this podcast, you can hear more from Len. Um, if you Google him, he's got a number of his talks, the national talks posted online. In fact, he was recently the um, keynote speaker at an NCQA conference on quality. This was a national forum on quality. And I heard tremendous feedback from participants. It was a standing room only session that he spoke at. He also most recently um, was invited to participate in a forum of about 25 of the most leading artificial intelligence experts in the country that were brought together by the National Academy of Medicine. Um, these analysts were from uh, leading organizations such as Google and IBM, the National Institutes for Health, the National Science Foundation, uh, the Mayo Clinic, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, uh, and Len was uh, one of that uh, very, very elite crowd of data analytics experts. And I, I definitely want to ask you, Len, we'll get into that, what you guys were doing there and what you came up with and what you plan to do. Um, it, uh, I did listen to your summary PowerPoint, uh, which was, by the way, 
really quite excellent. So anyway, Len, I, I hope I didn't embarrass you with that introduction, but uh, I did, didn't I? So well, welcome. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, Len. How, how are you doing? And, and uh, how's Boston right now? Uh, I'm I'm good, <clears throat> Zev. I think you have to come to dinner just once, and uh, and maybe do that intro uh, for my wife and family. It's incredibly generous. Well, now it's it's incredibly honest, and uh, and and Len, I'd I'd be delighted to come and, and to dinner uh, at your home and and do that if you reciprocate and come and and uh, share some. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to. Yeah, but in all seriousness, Zeb, um, I have tremendous respect for you and the work that you do, and I'm so excited that that you're you're spending your time now getting the message out as to how we can make healthcare better in in, uh, in new and creative ways. And it's a real pleasure to try to help you out with that. Oh, thanks, Len. I, I appreciate that. So let's dive in. Um, there are so many questions I I have for you, even though we've spoken so many times. But let, let me start with this, Len. You know, there's a, a lot of hype around predictive analytics. Um, it, it may be one of the most hyped areas of, of healthcare and technology right now. You hear about IBM's Watson. You hear about radiologists being replaced by machines who could read, uh, that can read. You, you, you know, you, you hear about Google jumping into this with leading academic medical centers. Um, and you hear all these names. You hear artificial intelligence, predictive analytics machine learning, computational learning, supervised machine learning, neural networks, artificial neural networks. I, I just read one the other day, convolutional neural networks. I, I have no idea what most of those mean. And so could, could you give us a sense? Um, I mean, you've been in this uh, for a long time. You've, you've done doctoral work, postdoctoral work. You're, you're clearly a leading national, if not international expert in this, especially as it pertains to the application in healthcare. And so could you explain to us all what basically is this field of artificial intelligence? What does it bring to healthcare? What can it do? How can it make healthcare better? In, in, in as simple terms as you as you can for the layman. Sure. Well, uh, let's frame it in terms of why people in healthcare should even care about it. Um, first, I think it's really important to distill, uh, dispel any rumors that um, what we're talking about here is either artificial um or intelligent. It, it's just math. And uh, it's math that's made possible by the fact that we now have computers that can work very quickly. And and so what is this math good for? Well, it, it helps us discover patterns within larger collections of data. And unlike most approaches to understanding data that we've relied upon for, for decades, it's it's not so Boolean in nature. It's not so hit or miss. It's it's more probabilistic. It, it's better at going across large collections and helping us understand what's likely to happen. And if you think about that, it's, that lines up well with how we think in healthcare and how clinicians process the data in front of them. Very rarely in healthcare is it so black and white that you're presented with one, two bits of information and then you can conclude definitively this is the diagnosis or this is the course of treatment or this is what's likely to happen after the treatment is delivered. Uh, the very interesting things about these methods from a mathematical standpoint is we can take these bits of information and begin to assemble them to very much like we do as people begin to assess, hey, this is what's likely to be the diagnosis or this is what's likely to happen. And so 
people shouldn't be thinking about these technologies in terms of, you know, sentient beings where you dump in all of this data into a black box and then uh, magically uh, out the other end uh, comes the, the cure for cancer. Um, instead, I think it's really more helpful to frame it in terms of, uh, well, hey, we, we now have some new tools that we didn't have before. And like any tool, there are pros and cons. They, they, they solve certain types of problems well. Uh, but uh, also, like any tool, if you don't have a blueprint, if you don't have uh, expertise in using them, if you don't have the right raw materials, um, they're unlikely to get you where you need to be. And I think what's made it really confusing for people is uh, we're talking about these tools as though um, the purchase or adoption of this particular tool, uh, as though the hammer itself will suddenly build the house as compared to I now have another tool in my toolkit and use the right way I can get uh, a little bit further in solving these really meaningful problems. That's really helpful. You know, I, I think I read this or I heard this from one of the talks you gave uh, where you, I think it was you who said um, that uh, to, to give it some credit to say that it, it is something new and different, like you say, and it is a powerful tool. And you described it as uh, really um, not just a new technology, but a new epistemology that is a, a shift in the way that we could actually learn and create knowledge. And and you said basically it, it where we typically now uh, learn and create knowledge through setting a hypothesis and then through deductive reasoning. This actually is inductive reasoning, uh, and and it actually generates hypothesis. And so so it is actually a different way of learning and understanding and and predicting what might happen. Or um, can you say more about that? I found that fascinating. Yeah. <clears throat> so this, you know, I, I sort of uh, discovered this. Uh, as somebody who is applying these technologies, uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with epidemiologists, uh, quality improvement specialists, health services researchers. And what I realized was it's not so logical to jump from uh, queries of a database, sort of traditional counting-based analytics, or even traditional statistics, which are designed in most cases to look for variance from the mean. Uh, a logistic regression would help us discover which variable is is likely to contribute to something being just outside the normal or statistically outside the normal. Um, and, and all of these approaches start with the human uh, as the center uh, of, the, of discovery, where the human is saying, these are the things that I think matter, and then I use these tools, math, to validate whether or not they really do matter. And that, that's, you know, that's sort of Epi 101. That's the basis of every clinical trial that's ever been conducted. These tools force us to think differently. And I think this is what makes them more challenging uh, for folks to get their head around in that rather than begin with a hypothesis uh, and with five, 10 variables that you think might move the needle one way or the other, instead you begin with the outcome. Uh, so, for example, if you're trying to figure out who's likely to be readmitted, we don't start the, let's say, readmitted to a hospital. We don't start in that same traditional way as statistics would, where we say, all right, these are the, these are the seven, 10, 15 things that I think might move the needle. Instead, we say, give me everyone that was admitted and then a comparable group of people that were not within the same period. And we can do the same sort of case control. Let's try to make the two populations look the same, except for the fact that one was admitted and one was not. And then machine learning helps us discover 
from all the data we have, and oftentimes that's millions of data points, which are the combinations or individual variables that make somebody in that cohort more likely to be admitted or not. And so in this way, um, we're, we're not coming to the table with a solid belief system as to what will matter or what won't. Of course, we have bias like that. We, we, we want to reassure ourselves that the things we think matter really do. But what makes these technologies so interesting is that they can help us discover across so much more data what are the combinations. And, and oftentimes when we do this work uh, at SIFT and, and as researchers, it's not five to seven variables that make Mr. Smith just a little bit more likely to fall down in the next two weeks. It's actually a combination of some 4,000 variables. And, and this is just different for, for us as people that were trained in more traditional statistics or, or analytics-based approaches. And it, it seems to me the power of this different way, this different epistemology, this different way of, of, of learning things and, and generating knowledge the, the magic is, like you said, that the computer can, the algorithm could take so many points of data and take those, you know, hundreds of, of possibilities and cull it down and actually give you some information where you could say, well, it's this, it's this thing or it's this combination of things. Is that, I mean, is that how, how it works? It is. And, you know, there's, there's, um, there is just as much danger to, to do that wrong as there is in traditional statistics where, we have always been dealing with the challenges of bad data and missing data and confounding variables. Um, the same is applicable here. And it's, it's probably even more of a threat because you have so much more data. Um, a classic example, um, when, when we do work to try to figure out uh, which patients should be approached by care management to, to help keep them out of, out of trouble and to prevent them from having unnecessary admissions, um, you wouldn't be surprised to learn that you know the most significant predictor of whether or not somebody is going to be admitted is if uh, if they get in an ambulance that day, um, and and that is one one of you know dozens of types of mistakes that one could fall victim to if you're not familiar with how these work. Um, but yeah, that's exactly it. Zeb. At the end of the day, what Amazon, Google, Facebook, Netflix, Walmart, Target. What they've all figured out how to do and have been doing successfully for about 20 years now is move away from this one-size-fits-all approach to understanding data. So, Zev, you and I are, are well, we're probably pretty similar types of consumers, but I bet there are some distinguishing characteristics as to what I'm likely to buy versus what you're likely to buy when, when you log on to Amazon. And Amazon doesn't consider us the same people. They don't broadcast advertisements to anyone anymore. Uh, what they do is they take all of the data they have, they use machine learning, and they figure out what makes Zev a little bit different than Len. What, what should we offer him and when and in what format to make him a little more, a little bit more likely to and quote unquote benefit from their intervention. Uh, the beauty of this is we can use those same approaches not just to sell more books uh, or, or ads or movies or, or whatever it is, but to figure out who needs help sooner and to customize our approach to them. So they're not just people who are going to be readmitted, right? There's a huge difference between a high-risk pregnancy and a geriatric nearing end of life. So why would we use math that thinks of them as the same exact person, which is really what we've been doing in healthcare for decades. Now we can say, well, this person's a little bit different than the next. 
this, these are their individual risk factors. These are the things we can do. This is when we should approach them. This is how likely they are to benefit, to engage. And it just brings healthcare into this much richer, data-driven, and eventually much more effective way of using their data to make better decisions. So, so, so Len, you, you, you uh, just handed us uh, at least two or three wonderful um, uh, understandings, and I just want to just parse them out a little bit and have you speak to them. One is that um, the same predictive analytics or algorithms that you you would use for one condition, let's say figuring out higher risk pregnancies, would not be necessarily the same algorithms that you would use for uh, an elderly person or a, a or, or a child, you know, in pediatrics. So, so I think that's really important because I had the sense before listening to you that that you know one predictive al- algorithm could could basically tell me everything about anyone. And what you're saying is that the math is different and, and it requires us to be to be even more customized and segmented. So I just want to clarify and see, you know, am I up to speed with, with, with that understanding? Yeah, so this is, Zev, another great example of how these approaches force you to think about learning and data differently. Uh, up until now, I, and I can tell you nearly every time we begin a conversation with healthcare organizations, they always come at it from the perspective of um, buying an algorithm. And uh, to me, this is in such stark contrast to how every other industry has learned to use their data. Uh, Honda would not dream of buying the same algorithm from a third-party vendor to figure out how to optimize their supply chain as as Toyota or Ford or Chevy. I mean, that there's just, it's ridiculous. They, they, mm. There's no competitive advantage to that. They're not using their own data in new ways. Um, uh, and yet in healthcare, because we've just been doing it this way, because we've just adopted approaches that came out of really uh, uh, actuarial science, where we were trying to assess the risk of an entire population, we've just sort of carried that from, from the payer world into the healthcare world. And we've said, well, let's Let's just adapt these logistic regressions that just use claims data and create one master algorithm, and it'll tell us, um, in effect, what we already know. Older, sicker people that have been readmitted more often are more likely to be readmitted. Um, and that, to me, that's, that's just madness compared to what every other industry has figured out how to do, and that is they don't have a master algorithm. They learn how to learn. And so if they're trying to figure, Amazon right now has over a hundred data scientists trying to figure out how to move the needle by some tenth of a percentage just around who is likely to convert on a gift card. Um, and this is one of thousands of really important questions that they try to answer with their data on a daily basis. So they, they don't buy population book selling from a third party. They, what they do is they learn how to learn. They use all of their data. And, and what makes them special, what has allowed them to completely transform their industry is not that they found a great algorithm for problem X, but that they can quickly use all their data to discover incremental efficiencies across thousands of their operational areas. And then most important, and this gets overlooked all the time in healthcare, they embed 
those learnings operationally. It doesn't stop with the prediction. It then moves on to, well, how are we doing? And how do we learn from what we just did? And so they create this continuous learning environment where yesterday's data informs today's decisions. And they don't buy a third-party product to become 100% better overnight. They look for ways to get 0.0001% better over and over again in every aspect of what they do. And they've literally become factories of learning. And that's what makes them so much better than, than so many of the other types of uh, companies that have just sort of been replaced by this new breed of, of learning organization. I, Len, I love that phrase, factories of learning. Um, and it, it kind of goes back to what, what you, you, you said before, or I, you know, I, I quoted from you this idea that you've been really trying to uh, have people understand within healthcare that, that we need to become a learning healthcare system. And so this is, this is not theoretical. This is not abstract. This is very, very real. It's the way, as you said, I mean, it's just these, these, these learning factories. You talk about the, you know, the, the Amazons and the Googles and the Targets and the Walmarts. And, you know, I mean, they're really, they're really under, to me, I mean, this is what's exciting. To me, this is, patient-centered care. This is the future of patient-centered care. Uh, it's not taking guesses. It's not applying some generic uh, heuristics to individuals, but it's really understanding individuals, not by taking potshot guesses or hypothesis generating in your own head. And this is really using data that's collected, analyzed, um, and, and through specific algorithms. So I, I'm excited for the future of healthcare, the future that you're talking about here, you know, this idea of creating a new healthcare in which we really can get the kind of care that is customized to us based on, on data and not based on guesses or something that was taught to someone 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. What this means, though, is the other implication of this, that, or at least I'm inferring, is that this is not a... Uh, a, a black box algorithm. This is not like a piece of software where you say, okay, we're, we're, we're going to buy this, you know, thing. We're going to install it into our, our electronic medical record system and then it's just going to be off and running and we're going to, you know, there, there it is. What you're suggesting, the picture, and, and, and I'm kind of blown away by it because I've not really understood this or heard you say this before, but it, it seems to me that this has got to be a, a core, um, a really core capability, uh, an asset that, um, that healthcare systems have, which is a, a way of really uh, learning from the data that they have. And so it's not you just buy a software, but I, I guess I'm seeing a picture where we really need analysts who understand this, understand how to use the data, uh, understand how to, how to really connect it clinically, how to collect the data. This is a whole new world you're, you're painting. And I, again, I, I don't want to, and I don't want to be hyperbolic about it. I just want to make sure I'm tracking what you're saying is required. And in fact, this is not the future because as you pointed out, this is what, what other industries have been doing for over a decade. I mean, this is not new stuff. Um, and yet, you know, we are not yet doing it. In fact, quite honestly, we're not even aware of what you're talking about. So, so, so would that be the picture? I mean, if you could snap your fingers and say, look, I'll work with a healthcare institution and I'll show them this is what, this is what it should look like. What would it look like? Would there be, multiple people like you working on, you know, in multiple ways, you know, condition by condition, specialty by specialty. What, what is the picture you have in your head? So, so Zeb, you're, you're on to it. And I, and I have to tell you that this is, 
This is the challenge of making this work. Today, and you know this, today it's about uh, clinicians, and then there's this group of people that live in the basement that um, that are called IT, and maybe there's another rogue group called informatics or or, uh, or you might even have some fellows that, that uh, have dabbled in data science. But there's this idea that data is, um, you know, it's a four-letter word. I mean, we have, we have done such a disservice uh, to, to our healthcare organizations by, by some of the decisions that we have made at a national level related to how we think about and use data. So I just want to... I, this is such a surprising thing or a new concept just because we've done such a terrible job of, of using data to date. I mean, we, we're, you, you know this, Zeb, but there's just no incentive to systematically collect and use all of our data to improve. You can't, as you rightly identify, this is not a third party app that you download or install. These are, this is a new way of learning. These are, teams of interdisciplinary people that bring different skill sets to the table that can understand what are the existing workflows, what are the priorities, uh, who do I have to give this information to, and when, so they can make the best possible decisions. You can't get there by having a couple of fellows or researchers uh, or one quality improvement person focused on it. That's absurd. The, the only way you can get there is you, you fundamentally change the way you think about and use information. And to date, data has been the exhaust of delivering care. It's, it's really only there to, uh, get reimbursement. Uh, it's there to protect ourselves legally from, from, uh, lawsuits. Um, it's there to demonstrate, uh, compliance with third party quality measures. Um, whereas in other industries, it's the lifeblood. It's the oxygen. You, you just can't survive without it. There's, there's not an executive that would take a job in any other industry if they didn't believe they could use their data to get better. And yet in healthcare, uh, we are, it just seems that it's, it's sort of, oh, darn it. Now I, now I have to go and talk to IT about adding another button so that I could, uh, get a little bit further ahead. Or, or I'm passionate about using data and now I have to stand in line. And the only way I can do it is if I get research funding. And then if I'm lucky, after a year of obtaining that funding and answering the question, I get to write a paper that sits in the, the, the stacks of a medical library. Um, so I just think that you've nailed it, right? The way of doing this right, not according to me, but according to how it's working, you know, trillions of dollars of economy has now been created as a result of these proven approaches. Uh, and yet the starting point in healthcare is just so far from that. Um, but, but what we have seen, Zeb, in, in doing this, and again, I've only been at this commercially for about a year and a half. We don't, for the most part, we don't work with a lot of hospitals. We end up working with care management organizations, uh, government sponsored health plans that have incentive because how could you invest in having an inter interdisciplinary team truly understand the issues and the workflows, use this software embedded in production? continue to invest, how could you do that if you weren't incented to actually discover thousands of opportunities for incremental improvement? Uh, but it is possible. It's just a different, it's a very different world. It's not a downloaded product. Yeah. You know, Len, I, I, I want to, in a, in, a, in a moment, I wanted to, uh, I want to dive into some specific examples 
that either you're working on or colleagues are working on in other companies uh, that, you know, demonstrating how this actually improves uh, healthcare and healthcare outcomes for patients and how it can actually really uh, support uh, physicians and other providers in really uh, leveraging their skill and talent. Because I, I know I've heard you say this so many times that, you know, you, you don't believe this is actually displacing providers or physicians. You actually think this is just taking them to a whole different level in terms of what they're able to accomplish. And like you said, this is a tool, but the hammer doesn't build the house, right? Um, it's still the carpenter that builds the house and um, and the other expertise and the architects and all that. So so this is this is not again. I think that that whole notion is is part of the whole hype, uh, you, you know, part of it. So, but before we jump into some examples, I, I do. You, you've said this before, and I, I think it's. I think it, it 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 may not be the most politically correct thing to say and talk about, but but it's it just seems like you're you're hitting a truth, and and it, it is upsetting for lots of us I know in healthcare, um, e- even those of us who whose livelihood depends on the current payment model. Uh, but the truth is that in other industries, perhaps I think the, the reason they've advanced this data analytics and this artificial intelligence and machine learning and computational neural network and all that other stuff, the reason is that it, it advances them financially. They, this is to know your customer, to understand what they need, to understand when they need it, how they need it, um, you, you know, to really understand how they imbibe knowledge. So the way that you market to, you know, to me is different than the way you market to you. All that information is critical to their financial viability and, 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 and strength and growth. In healthcare, we have we don't have that same uh, we, uh, payment system, and so we 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 definitely. I mean, look, I've spent my whole career on quality, quality improvement, process improvement in healthcare and in, in, in the belly of the beast, and so there are armies and reams of people, and, and I truly believe that. The vast, vast majority of people in healthcare want to do the right thing for patients. So that's not the issue. The issue, though, is that we are not, unlike other industries, where the incentive isn't aligned to make us go, you know, that extra mile to really provide the best possible outcomes of care. It's just not incentive. And in the fee-for-service model to date, and so, you know, to your point, I, and again, I should ask you this question. I shouldn't even say this, and I apologize because you, you're living this now. How do you sell this to someone? Because there's a lot of investment, just like in other industries in healthcare. If we're going to invest in, in predictive analytics and this sort of thing, and if it's not going to be a sideshow, as you said, or a nice to do, or boy, you know, that'll be the icing on the cake. If it's really going to become what it should be, as it is in other industries, which is like your oxygen, your lifeblood. This is the way you actually deliver the best possible outcomes for your customer, for your patients. The, the, the system of payment has to incent that and reimburse for that and account for that. And that's just not the case. And so is, is that your experience as you go out and try to sell this to folks that it's just not aligned? So, Zeb, you know where I fall on this. And I, I, I with every year that uh, that I spend in healthcare, uh, my feelings on this is, is uh, reaffirmed and become stronger. The most important thing we could do to improve the health of our nation uh, and, and, and our sons and daughters and mothers and fathers and uncles and aunts it is to create a system where we get paid more to keep people healthy. And uh, it just seems so simple and it becomes so political so quickly. Um, 
But I have to tell you that as medicine has evolved away from one doctor who understands everything that, you know, needs to be understood to make the decisions. As we move toward more specialists and our understanding of biology grows deeper and the amount of data we collect grows wider and the opportunity for mistake uh, grows uh, higher because of the amount of interaction between many people on a team, the idea that we could realize real improvement without the system being incented to invest in it, that somehow well-meaning individuals could achieve the same level of improvement as a system spending real money to get better because it will not survive if it doesn't. I mean, this is so fundamental. Uh, and, and I just, you know, anytime we talk about any individual change that could be made to improve care, I just wonder what is, what is more foundational, what is more fundamental than creating incentive so that every healthcare system has to invest uh, in order to survive in keeping people healthy. I, I can tell you I have sat across from uh, the CFOs of very large hospitals and described the work that we do and uh, was told in no uncertain terms, I get it, I think it's very valuable, I cannot afford to invest in technology that keeps people out of my hospital. And many a CFO will, will tell you that in order to maintain the survival of their institution, they, they can't invest heavily in things that keep people out of their buildings. It's, there is a very intentional strategy right now of large hospital systems to purchase ACOs. Why? Not not to try to convert to value-based care, but because in the current fee-for-service system, a network of ACOs represents a way to prevent leakage. They're a giant network of referrals into the hospital. And so while this is the case, uh, you know, I, how, how can the system get better? How can it invest in learning if learning would cause its doors to shutter? And so, yeah, it's, it's a big deal, not for machine learning, but just for for getting better. Uh, it, I mean, we could talk about the business implications to my company, but it, man, it's bigger than that. No, I, I, I think it is bigger. And, you know, I, I will tell you as someone who has lived in and continues to live and work in, uh, in the system, uh, you know, I, I think we're, we're in a very, very tough spot. And, um, you know, I think that everyone, including the, you know, CFOs and, and senior leadership and, uh, managers and leaders and, and even clinicians, and I've, I've talked to clinicians who struggle with this as well, um, you, you know, it, it, is, it is hard to buck the system. You, you, can't, you can't make mistakes that will uh, be harmful to your organization financially because you won't be around um, and you won't be able to deliver the care at all if you do that. And so, so I think it's, it's not any individual and it's not any healthcare system. I, I would agree with you. It's you know, it's it's the, the payment model, which does not foster the kind of incentive I think we would want for, for every one of us, which is I want to make sure you're being paid to actually provide not just 100 percent, but 150 percent to, to keeping me healthy. And, and not only just when it becomes, uh, you know, uh, tertiary care, or high, high intensive care, but even before that. And so, um, I, I, you know, I, I know we've we've kind of gone off on a little tangent and we're not talking about uh, you know, artificial intelligence, but I, I think it is going to, to me, it seems like the root cause that's holding us back from making the kind of investments and creating the type of uh, care that we really want and need, 
uh, using the data analytics. You know, again, just like other industries have been doing for a decade or two, um, what's holding us back, I think, fundamentally is not our, our desire or our lack of desire is not our, our technical capability, but it is this, um, it is this payment system. And so, um, that's just got to be something we, we tackle and try to, and I know, um, I know from being on the inside that organizations are trying to move this forward as best they can, but it's, it's challenging. But let's, let's get back to, I, I, I would like for you to paint a picture of examples of, so we've been talking about, you know, if we had this capability, um, care would be better. We would be able to know our patients better, know how they get better, know how to communicate with them better. So, could you give us some examples of how uh, using this uh, technology in this different way of learning from the data, how it can actually make an outcome better in some condition or situation or disease? Yeah, yeah I'm happy to. And, and let me, I just want to, one more thing about the incentive. I think it's really easy to, uh, we, we love to have very clearly defined bad guys uh, when we talk about narratives like this. And, um, it's convenient to, to sort of blame uh, executives or, you know, the big C-level people in greedy hospitals. But, but no, it's, it's, that may be simple, but it's wrong, right? It, mm-hmm. it really is the incentive system we've created. Every hospital executive got into healthcare to make people healthy. I mean, I've, I've never met one that didn't want to do the best possible thing for the patient. They also recognize, as you suggested, Zev, they won't be the, the the hospital itself will not be there to provide the care need that everyone needs if they don't do so in a sustainable way. So it's this is a policy issue. This is not a a bad actor issue. So I just now yeah, I agree. We'll, now we'll hop we'll hop to what you said, and I'll give you very real. So then, what do you do? How, how could I have a company <laughs> if there's no market for it? Um, we actually have have learned that if you. And I, I got into this business because there was a small sliver of healthcare that was being, is being delivered in, in these sort of capitated, uh, value-based models. And I, I don't mean sort of, you know, zero downside risk plus two points cost sharing ACO type, type, uh, financial risk. I mean, you get a fixed amount of dollars to keep people healthy. And if they're healthy, you know, if you, if you deliver effective care, uh, then you get to keep some of that money. And if, and if you don't and they end up in the hospital over and over again, then as a business, you go under. And so that, that's, there's a sliver of healthcare that is that way. And, and those are obviously health plans, uh, even better if they're health plans that care for people with, um, that, that are paid for by the government in terms of Medicaid, Medicare Advantage, uh, or carve-outs, uh, folks that approach those health plans and say, we will care for your sickest, for your neediest, and we'll do so in a more effective way. So I set that up, Zev, because for, for me to give you examples, I, I want you to understand the context into mm-hmm. which we're doing this work. And and then I'll, I'll give you an example. Every time we start this work, it starts with, all right, uh, Let's, everyone thinks of it in the traditional way. Let's reduce admissions or 30 day readmissions. And what happens is we sit down with them and we, we ask them, well, what could you do about it? And, and we ask the data, what are you seeing? Uh, where are we seeing the greatest need? Who is most actionable? And we start to move from this one size fits all approach to a series of models or interventions that could be undertaken. So, uh, this is an example that's public. 
We work with Beacon Health Options. They're a, a, a uh, national behavioral health care organization. They work mostly with health plans to care for folks with behavioral health challenges. And the first thing we did for them is we started talking about how to address preventable admissions. And, and by the end of this design experience where you're talking about interventions, you're understanding the economic incentives, you're looking at the data to say what is actionable, you move away from admissions to preventable admissions of patients with serious mental illness, and not just any admission, but inpatient psychiatric admission, and not in 30 days, but in 90 days. And so you see how you, you move from this mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. one master algorithm to lining up individuals with a very specific intervention. And if you're doing this stuff right, it should not be black box, and you should always be empirically evaluating the results uh, so that you know before you ask people to take action, what is the likelihood that it's going to work, that, that you are accurate in your recommendations. And there's an example where using these approaches, we not only figured out what's most actionable, but in doing so, improve the accuracy of their traditional way of doing this, which is sort of traditional risk score or looking for the most expensive people in the last six months. We were able to do this proactive approach and improve their accuracy by over 220%. And then you start moving to different types of models. You start saying, all right, who's the next group? Is it folks with substance use disorder? Is it first episode psychosis? And you start to move toward this learning healthcare system where even the care management teams now start to think about what they could do, not in terms of one sheet of people that need help, but in terms of interventions that can be approached in a more effective way. So we work with geriatric populations, and we help to figure out not just who's going to be admitted, but who is likely to have a fall in the next two weeks so that we can send a van to their home and check for a bath mat and, and, uh, and make sure their shoes are fitting properly and remove any false risks like, like carpets or furniture uh, that's ill-placed. Yeah. You know, I think, Len, just let me, let me intercede here. So, yeah, please. and that's important. That's important too. So what, 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 so I, I work in population health and I have, and, you know, one of the things that's challenging is, you know, someone might be thinking, well, you know, why don't you just send that to every person who's older that maybe doesn't have, you know, the right balance? Well, problem is that it's not that simple. You know, no one has the resources to just blanket an entire population of people with, you know, visiting nurses and redoing the homes. It's just what you need to know is who needs this, really needs this, because we just we don't have the shot. We don't have enough shot in the shotgun to just hit the entire population and blanket everyone all the time, everywhere. We really have to have this information to know, look, these five people, these 10 people, this 1% of the population, this is what you need to do for them now. And so I think that's an important point and, and one of the advantages of, of having this thing, this, this approach and technology. The other point, which again, you stress uh, and you keep on saying it, but I think it's important to emphasize it because it is so, this, this is such a novel concept, so different from the way uh, I was thinking about artificial intelligence and predictive analytics. Uh, I'm assuming everyone else that this is not a black box. This is not a software program you buy, you plug in, and you use. This is really a way of uh, of solving the problems in healthcare. And, and when I when you were just talking, actually, it reminded me of, of a theme I've heard from two other really world class experts. I was talking to a guy named Roy Rosen, who's the chief innovation officer at, at Penn Medicine, UPenn, 
And uh, he came from uh, the world of Intuit. From uh, He was uh, an executive at Quicken and TurboTax. He was their innovation officer there, as well as being an executive. And he had this great quote. He said, the thing he learned from where he came from that he brought to healthcare is, in healthcare, we tend to fall in love with solutions. And he said the difference is where he came from, you, you don't love the solution, you love the problem. And you really spend your time solving the problem, using the tools and technology as an aid. The minute you think that that black box is going to solve your problem, that tool or that technology that looks really, really cool is going to do it, he said, you're going to, you're sunk. And I heard Aaron Martin, who came from Amazon, uh, who was a senior executive there in charge of their publishing division that disrupted the entire publishing industry. He's now in healthcare. He basically said the same thing um, as you're saying. And so I think it's an important point because to me, the big shift that you're painting and the big picture you're painting for me now is that, look, you're saying, Zeb, this is not a, a software program. This is not an algorithm that you can just purchase and use and say, hey, I've got AI. I've got artificial intelligence. We've got machine learning. No, this is a skill set. This is a, just like, you know, lean product, totally, totally production system was a, a skill set in process improvement. Um, and that has to be embedded in operations to be effective. This is another skill set. And so it isn't just buying an algorithm. You really, to me, it seems like we need to start training, hiring, bringing people into healthcare who are part of our, our, our process improvement teams, part of our operational teams who, who yes, have this skill in technology, but work with clinicians and work with administrators to really understand what the problem is we're trying to solve, get very specific, solve that problem and move on to the next one. At least that's the picture that's emerging for me. And for me, that's a radically different understanding of this whole world than the one I had even before became, we, we had this, began this conversation. So I just want to check with you to make sure that I'm tracking you. No, that, that's exactly it. So I, I, you know, I, I started to call that data thinking, right? This, we just have to think about the way we use information entirely differently. This is, it's not a downloaded product. It's not a master algorithm. It's not a solution that you can install. It's, it is the responsibility of everyone involved, either on the operational side or on the clinical side, to, to be part of these teams and to understand that, you know, d- data as a raw material gets all of its value from context that solutions can only be arrived at with a careful understanding of workflows that the best prediction in the world is merely a suggestion until you put it into action and it doesn't really achieve value until you measure what it is you're trying to improve and then roll those learnings in. It's What we have learned that is most important for us to do is to educate the teams that we work with that you are not, you're not working with us to buy a software product. You, you are working with us to embed learning in the way you operate. And we won't do jobs where we don't have a clinical champion, an operational champion. We, if someone says we, we just want to bake off to see an area under ROC for readmissions, it, to us, it, it either means we have to do a better job of educating. And if we can't, we have to find partners that are ready to, to do the types of things we're talking about doing. And, and we've been very fortunate, uh, to find those partners and to begin to, to, to learn with them how best to do this. But I, I, you know, we've, for 10 years, we've been working on making the technology work, 
But what we realize is the, the, what really has to happen is you have to get the process in place. You have to educate folks. You have to create these interdisciplinary teams. We call them work groups. And the work groups are focused on, just as you said, solving a problem. And we tell them we only want to be measured. We only want to have these meetings around are we solving the problem. And this is, this is just really different for folks. But I, I got to tell you, if, if I could figure out how to install a product and have it solve these problems, uh, my investors would be happier, right? Mm-hmm. My, my, my margins would be enormous. I would just give you this dashboard. And, uh, and even though it was using the same claims data as everybody else and assume that your patients suffered from the same illness and that you had the same priorities. If I thought that that would solve the problem, I, I would have stayed on the sidelines um, or I just would have duplicated that sort of roll out the dashboard approach. But but you nailed it, Zev. Uh, learning how to learn uh, involves sort of resetting. And, and, and I think the thing to reemphasize is this is not just um, – this is not a new idea. I mean, it's a really new idea in healthcare, but – as, as your friends from other industries that have moved into healthcare are, are, are describing for you, uh, we just do things real different here. And unless we start thinking about it in different ways, it's going to be tough for us to realize the type of uh, advance that our patients and our clinicians deserve. Yeah. You know, Len, you, you, you told me a story, and I, I, I apologize for asking this again, but I, 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 I asked you the same to tell me the same story uh, over and over again just because I, I love the story and I think it really paints the picture um, and I've actually used it as an example when I talk to folks, you know, you know, again, for the clinician, you know, the question is, you know, how is this going to really help me take better care of patients? And the picture I carry around with me from listening to you talk about your, your, your actually really your introduction to healthcare when you were, I think, a postgrad at, at the Beth Israel Deacon Medical Center in, in, in Boston. And you were, you were, began to work with a urologist and you were talking about um, discovering how, how that urologist makes decisions in the, in the operating suite about what to do, how to approach a patient um, in terms of prostatectomies. And, you know, uh, do, do you spare the nerve? Do you not spare the nerves? Wider margin, narrow margins. And you ask the question, um, uh, you know, as a data scientist, you, you just assume that all that data was not exhaust, as you put it, but it was actually being collected so that um, that the next time the urologist came across the same patient or similar patient or another urologist, that there would be some learning from that. And, and the, the truth is that at this point in time, this day and age, and the way we've done in the past, the learning happens within one doctor's cranium. So you, you, you learn, you do something with a patient, you, you sort of remember it, you learn from it, hopefully, maybe you're talking to some other colleagues, but that learning is very, very loose and very informal in a way and not structured. And, 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 you know, it is the learning of an individual as they perfect their craft and practice, practice, practice. But what you're suggesting is, and, and what you, I, as I recall the story you discussed with the urologist was that, look, you know, every decision you make in that specific patient, those, those are data points that can be collected. And, and, and you asked the question, you were like, well, how many times did, you know, a day does a urologist do a prostatectomy across the country? And, and there were literally thousands of, of, of examples of this happening every single day, all this data, and, and I could see it in your head, and even as you were telling the story, all this data that's happening every single day, none of it is being collected. And so there's no learning, so that the next time you see a 65-year-old African-American male, you know, who has certain sets of conditions, you didn't 
collect the data and you have no way of knowing what is the right decision for this type of patient. Um, and so that's where you say that the data is just exhaust, you know, as opposed to being collected and then analyzed and, and used to really help uh, physicians and surgeons and other providers make really informed, customized uh, decisions that can improve outcomes. And so th- those are really, really gripping examples of, of what healthcare can be and should be. And, and we have the capability to do that now. It's not a futuristic thing. And so to me, this is just very, very exciting what, what we can do. And I'm, um, again, I, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I, you know, just like you and you know me, I, I, I wish we could do it yesterday. Um, other industries have done it yesterday. Um, and so, uh, so I guess my, you know, my, well, let me, before I move on, because I took your story and I told your story. <laughs> you did it well. <laughs> I was, I was riveted. I was waiting for the ending. <laughs> well, I feel bad because every time we get on the phone and we talk, I say to you, someone's like, like my favorite uncle. I say, Len, tell me the story about the urologist. You tell me the story. <laughs> You've told it to me four or five times. And I just, yeah. but I, I find it to be so, it just, it shows, it's illustrated to me the potential, first of all, you know, how you coming in see the world and the potential for what we can do and how this can really transform how a provider offers care to their patients. And so that's what's so exciting about it. Well, Zeb, I mean, don't we deserve that? I mean, I get to work this morning using Google Maps. Uh, so why, how is how are, how is Waze or Google Maps even possible? Well, it's it's collecting the individual experience of millions of people, and it's feeding back to me, the one user in real time, the best way to do a thing, uh, not based on intuition, but based on the collective experience. Uh, I think when you if you don't know better and you're coming into healthcare, either, either as a, as a, as a new, uh, medical student or in my case, as a software engineer moving into the healthcare space via a PhD, it's kind of mind boggling that my cell phone can, can get me from point A to B based on the collective experience. It can, it can recommend where to get dinner or avoid getting dinner based on collective experience. And yet, uh, and Deb, you know the story. When when my wife, at a young age, was was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer, e- even though as a researcher I had already been working in the cancer space, I knew that that there were uh, probably hundreds of thousands of young women like her, uh, and and hundreds of thousands of husbands like me that had to make really important decisions. Uh, do, do we do we radiate, you know, b- before? Before we, we tried to expand the tissue to replace her breast. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we deserve, we deserve to use this data. It's just sitting there. It's, yeah. it's there for yeah. the taking. And, uh, and you know, if it can get me, uh, to, to, to pick up groceries and save an extra five minutes, maybe it should help me make a decision about how best to, to care for someone I love with cancer. Right. And, yeah. So this is why this has to happen, man. That it's you know it's, yeah. it's overdue. Yeah, Len, I just want to say I I I I do know about the story with your wife and and what you both went through, and I just just a I just want to say you know thank you for sharing that, and 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 I know I know it's still um, emotional for you and painful for you even to talk about it, um, and so I just want to thank you for sharing it, and I think the point you're making to me at least is. For those who are listening, um, 
you know, in whatever role you are, this, this is exactly, you know, I mean, you just said it right. I mean, look, we have technology that is, is amazing technology that helps us make decisions about where to eat or how to get to the next place, you know, two minutes faster or 30 seconds faster. And yet when it comes to things like, you know, my, my, my wife or husband or, or child or parent or, or friend or colleague is sick and, and I've got to make a decision and, and I, I, you know, what kind of data do I have? What kind of knowledge? And yet this happens, like you say, thousands, if not tens of thousands of times over and over and over again. And there's data that can inform it. And yet we're not using that data. And it's, it's still kind of, we're pushing it off and we're saying, we've got real problems to solve now. We're going to do that kind of funky thing in the future. And I, I think we have to say no. I mean, this is this is data that can really save lives, that can make those decisions, whether you're a provider or, or a, a patient or family member of a patient, can really help you make those decisions. And I, I don't even, I mean, I'm thinking about you and, and where you were, you know, with your wife. And I, I just could see, you know, you're in this, you're, you're here you are knowing the data that could have been generated that could have helped you make better decisions with your wife. And yet we're, we're not, we're not using it. We're, we're still putting it off. And I, I know this fuels your, your frustration with the payment system, which is still not aligned and not supporting this work, which is life-saving work. This is the core of healthcare. This is the core of medicine. And um, it's the core of the practice of medicine. And, um, and so I'm, 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 you know, the reason I, I really wanted to talk to you and, and have you on this podcast is because I, I think people need to hear this message. And, um, and I'm, and again, the point is, this is not to, the point of this podcast is not to inform people or to educate people. The, the point of this podcast and the point of the work I'm doing, as you alluded to at the beginning, is I, I want to catalyze some action. I want people who, who have the power and authority and the ability um, and the smarts and, you know, and, and to really be motivated to do something different today. And that's why we're talking and that's why I'm spending all this time, you know, getting it out there. So I just want to thank you though for, for, for sharing something very, very personal and real and, and even and painful. And, and because it's, 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 it's true for all of us. There is very, very few people who have not had painful circumstances with, with loved ones. And, and this is about making, making that better as, as best we can. I want to ask you, just go ahead. I'm sorry. Were you going to say something? Well, I, I just want to say, first of all, um, you know, it occurred to me that you know that my wife is fine, but if we're talking about her health and uh, I, I, and I did bring her up, I, people should know that she's doing great. Everything's okay. Um, second, Zev, I, you know, I think for years, I just, you know, I, I handled this by thinking if I built a better software, then, uh, then people would uh, come around to what was possible. And then maybe they will begin to adopt it. And that's why for years I did this as a researcher. Um, we're not going to get change unless we figure out how to make it more financially attractive to deliver care effectively than, than it is financially attractive to deliver care based on volume and complexity. So I, uh, I just, there's a path forward here and that is to find this this five based on how you do the math is five to twelve percent of healthcare that is delivered in a true value based system, and to make it so successful using technologies like this, using these holistic approaches, uh, that the fee for service world, uh, these executives, these shareholders, 
um, have to invest more heavily because it's just more financially lucrative to deliver care in, in a value-based uh, world. I mean, that the reason why I left academia to form the company is I thought, well, I, I'm not a politician. I can't change policy in that way. So how do I work with what I know how to do within this broken system to make a difference? And for me, it was, let's make this value-based thing so lucrative, so successful in terms of outcomes, of course, but also in terms of dollars that more fee-for-service hospitals have to invest in more fee-for-value-based uh, contracts. And maybe we grow that 5% to 10 and 10 to 20. And we, we get to the point where this is a true viable alternative to, to just getting paid based on volume and complexity. Yeah, no, I, I, that's really well said. And I, it actually really explains what you're doing. You know, Len, your, your journey, I, I, you know, part of the reason I have certain people on is it's not just about your expertise and not just about your accomplishments and your success uh, and not even what you're contributing and are going to contribute, but it's, it's also about the courage and, and the vision. And, um, you know, you could have stayed in academia and continued to be very successful and, and as you were, and, and but you really made this leap. And this is about, you know, your real desire to create a new healthcare to really improve it and you you know it can be better and you know it should be better and you have a very clear vision of it and and so i want to just say, say you and your colleagues and i know you 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 work with others uh you were just at this uh national um uh the, the national academy of medicine meeting you know with you know 20 or, or you know 20 25 people uh who were like you in terms of your level of expertise uh in analytics and and uh engagement in healthcare. It just was was what did you all come up with? Uh, was was it along the lines we've been talking about? It? So this is not just your thoughts. Or the, you know, what what did the collective group? Uh, was there any wisdom that came out of it, or is it just too early? No, I, actually, it was you know I, I've been to I can't even count the number of meetings. You know, I've been at this for about thirteen years, so I've been to so many meetings where machine learning uh, was was probably the focus of the meeting, or at least a big part. This was a really special meeting down in DC. You know, number one, I just, you know, on a personal note, what a refreshing treat to walk through the halls of the National Academy. This, this sort of institution of science and expertise and learning, uh, to be gathered to try to affect policy. Uh, in light of the current political climate, I just thought, thank God that, you know, data and science is alive and well in DC. So uh, on a personal note, it was just really nice to be, to be in those halls. Um, the second reason why, to me, it was such a special experience is the, this is the organization that that gave us uh, to air is human and called out the fact that, uh, you know, because of our inability to learn, we're probably killing at, at the time they had estimated 98,000 people a year. That was in 2001. Of course, that number has been revised upwards to, to between 210 and 400,000 people dying every year by medical error. So so they're also the people that introduced the idea of a learning healthcare system. To me, why we would need to even say that is probably a shame, but the fact that they came out and said it and acknowledged that we don't do it uh, uh, makes them a special type of organization in my mind. And and there uh, there we were, um, probably to 25, 30 of us, all people that have been fighting to make machine learning really work. And, and uh, you know, it's people from IBM and Epic and Google and Anthem and Johns Hopkins and Cerner and just a hell of a lineup. 
Um, and what came out of it, I had the pleasure of going last and presenting to National Academy leadership and, as well as the group. I did a summary of what, of what everyone had been saying, the major points that were being made. And the, the goal of the meeting was, should the National Academy of Medicine put together a working group to focus on AI machine learning? If they do, what should the focus of that working group be? And why it was such a pleasure is that the issues that people brought to the forefront were exactly the issues that I've been just sort of um, challenged by running into over and over again for the last dozen years or so. And so people said, hey, education, we could help people understand what is this? And it's it's not just marketing hype and it's it's not black box. It's a process. There are ways to get there. And so they talked about education. They talked about interpretability. Like how, how do we help people understand the results that come out of this? Uh, how do we understand workflows enough to embed? How do we deal with the this convoluted incentive structure? How do we deal with data quality? Uh, how do we deal with regulation? I mean, it was just a fantastic meeting. And um, mm. I, as you saw, I put, I put yeah. together, I, I got the National Academy's permission to post the recording and I laid over the slides and put some subtitles on there because when I was flying home, I just thought, man, this is exactly what we need to be talking about. And what a pleasure to have all these people in the room that are just so expert and nobody is sort of throwing hype around. Everyone's just saying, hey, guys, these are the problems. We need your help. Um, so I would, if, if people want uh, to dive deeper, that that's online now. I think you can go to the SIFT website or you could just Google uh, my name and maybe maybe find it. I put it on LinkedIn and tried to tweet it around a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I saw it uh, this week and it was it was really spectacular. You know, I just want to underscore for you know, for folks and, and picking up on what you said about uh, To Air is Human, which came out around 2000, was it? And Don Berwick was one of the lead authors for that. And I've, I've had the opportunity actually to interview Don, Dr. Berwick on, on his podcast. Um, and, um, you know, that's that statistic, that figure of 90,000 uh, people uh, dying in our system, avoidable deaths. So currently, just just to just to keep it real, at this point in time, uh, as of the latest information I've read, um, the, the, the estimate is somewhere between 200 to 400,000 people uh, die in our healthcare system, uh, avoidable uh, deaths. These are preventable, avoidable deaths a year. And so we're, we're, we're talking about hundreds each day uh, who uh, people, these are, again, our family members and our friends and our loved ones who are dying in the healthcare system, avoidable deaths. And so the problem still exists. It, it, we know that that healthcare is is either the third or fourth leading cause of death in this country. Again, so this is not to criticize uh, or to diss healthcare because you know, thank God we have our healthcare system. But this is to point out that that problem hasn't gone away. It's it continues to be a situation. There is tremendous opportunity to make healthcare better and uh, and safer without any doubt. And so. So this isn't a historic problem. This is a problem that is alive and well. And so I'm just grateful that that you all were meeting to to bring the, the, the you know the cutting edge uh, technology of machine learning there to to help us in this effort. And I just want to say though, again, just to bring this point home, because you know, again, I come back. I come from a, a perspective of someone who lives in the system. I've been in operations for many years. I've been in process improvement for many years in healthcare and and. and, and hospital systems and ambulatory uh, systems, uh, large systems. And the thing that I think about as an operator or someone who, who really wants to, you know, at the front line making this happen, the thing that comes to mind is 
if I if I had the druthers and said, you know, what do I want to happen today or tomorrow? I would say we need people. We need people who are, are who, just like we need specialists in, in internal medicine and family medicine and surgical specialties and 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 whatnot and radiologists and, and and you know rehab and this and that. We need people who are highly trained in this field. This data analytics, like you say, is not a couple of people that you hire and and have somewhere off in a in informatics building somewhere. These we need to get more people like this who are highly trained who know healthcare, who do fellowships in healthcare, who can work with clinicians and administrators and solve these problems. And that's what I would focus on personally. I would I would just get the training, get these people, bring them in, create the fellowships. It's almost like a like a specialty in medicine. I mean, that's how it seems to me. We need to have specialists in data that are literally shoulder to shoulder with other specialists in health. So is that the, the AMA uh, just certified informatics as a subspecialty of medicine. Um, and my, my training was funded into existence uh, by the National Library of Medicine because they recognize that we need more people coming into healthcare that, that understand the data. Um, I think the challenge is you, you can, you can train them and you can bring them in, mm-hmm. but you don't address 400,000 accidental deaths a year without investing in, in doing things very differently. It's, uh, I think the challenge to, yes, absolutely, we need people, but we also need the system willing to invest in them and the tools they need. Uh, and, and, and why would a system take any doctor out of the field if the doctor gets paid for by the number of surgeries they perform? So it's, you know, it's, it's people, sure, but, but man, um, so many of, of really bright software, data science type people have come into healthcare and then ran the hell out because once they re- got there, they realized that there, there's just no way for them to make the kind of difference that they got into the field to make. Well, you know, you know, Len, I have to tell you, that's, that's been my observation as well uh, over the past few years that these, these really super bright, super talented, super trained, you know, data analytics, predictive, predictive analytics folks come in and then they go, they leave. I've, I've observed that. And I, I think you're right. What I've also observed and I've heard uh, now from, from many people who are, who are much closer to this is that in other industries, you, you know, the, the Facebooks and the Amazons and, and numerous other shops that do this work, they, they're, they're just pulling these people like literally out of school. I mean, they, they can't pay them enough to come work because they know this data analytics is, is critical to their success. I don't see that happening in healthcare. I don't see us offering the kind of money and the kind of incentive, uh, to bring and then keep these people in healthcare. And so I, I think you're right. It's more than just, you know, having the people and training them. It's really appreciating them and incenting that, uh, as, as, as we would any other critical part of the, you know, healthcare. That's, that's right. So I, Zev, I'm paying them an exorbitant amount of money. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually paying them exactly what they're worth. Uh, but, but we, we, we pay them well and we look for the brightest talent and then, and then we focus them just at that tiny sliver of healthcare that needs them, that, that not just appreciates them and their talents, but knows that their ability to survive as a system, uh, is increasingly dependent on discovering those thousands of incremental opportunities for improvement. Not, not to 
be compliant with that one mandated measure, uh, but to figure out which members in my health plan are likely to leave after I've invested in their health and, 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 and so on and so forth. They're just, yeah. if you're incented the right way, there is no limitation to what learning will do for you. And if you're not, mm. it's a, it's a cost and, and nobody wants to take yeah. on cost that doesn't return. Yeah. So, so Len, I, I, I've, I, I've kept you now. We, we've gone quite a bit and um, I will say this is one of the longer interviews. And quite honestly, I, I have enough questions that keep us going um, for a, another hour, but I want to, I want to just respect your time and, and, and thank you for, for really taking the time out of your, your busy day and, and, and to, to speak with, with us. Let me ask you a, a couple of last final questions. Um, it, you know, again, this feels like a, a, this dialogue we've had is really kind of an eye opener. And I want to give you the opportunity to uh, sort of give a call to action. What, what suggestion, recommendation, advice would you have summing what we've talked about and what you've talked about? Um, what would you, if you had the ear of, uh, you know, uh, healthcare executives or, you know, what would you tell them they should next do? What, what should be the next steps? What's this, this call to action to kind of move us in, in this right direction that we, that you've been describing? Well, I think first, when we have these types of conversations, we're talking about change and change is hard. Systematic change is, is really hard. Um, and so I don't want to leave this, uh, I don't want to leave this impression that uh, this is a mountain that we cannot get to the top of. I, I've seen more change in, in my dozen years of doing this than, than I think that this industry has seen in, and decades. I mean, we went from a 6% adoption rate of digital records when I started uh, to, to now being over 95%. So we, we have data. We went from an entirely fee-for-service system to now having, depending on how you measure it, 5 to 12 or 13% of healthcare delivered in a true value-based way. We went from needing to spend thousands of dollars on, on one machine that could do this work to now, you know, my company can run an algorithm across a thousand servers in the cloud and deliver back answers in milliseconds. So, so this is happening at breakneck speed. It's just that there's so much change to be had that it can feel a little overwhelming. Um, but I, I think the first message that, that we want to make sure people have is that uh, change is happening. It will be in fits and starts. It will be uncomfortable, um, but it's for the best and it's happening today. So then the question is, well, how do I end up on the right side of change? Because whether we're willing to admit it or not, change always displaces people who, who don't see it coming or are willing to adapt to it. And to that, I would, I would say, uh, that you were spot on, Zev, that organizations need to invest in the people who understand how to do this, the processes involved, the the contracts, even if in small sort of starter form, that let them gain this experience. Because even though it may appear that there's just too much money to be had in continuing to do things the old way, um, there are a number of organizations that thought that and ended up on the wrong side of things. Uh, just ask our friends at Encyclopedia Britannica or Polaroid. Uh, <laughs> When change happens, you have a choice, uh, adapt to it or be left on the wrong side of it. And so um, I couldn't be more excited about the way this is all unfolding. Um, but but I think that we just have to roll up our sleeves and acknowledge that nothing worth doing ever comes easy. And 
And, uh, and th if this was a simple thing to do, it, it would have happened years ago. That's great. So Len, I, I, again, I just, um, I want to thank you. I, again, I, I, I'm looking at my notes here. I've, I've got, you know, <laughs> other questions, but I'm going to, I'm going to hold back right now. I'm really trying very hard not to uh, keep you on the line here. Um, and I'm hoping that we'll have, uh, in, in a, you know, a few months or so, three, four, five, six months, we will have another opportunity to do this uh, together and interview together and um, share it in some forum. So um, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you if we can do that. I hope you say yes. Um, well, Zev, you just did a podcast about data and healthcare. I mean, check the ratings before you invite me back on, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now, now, now that is, Len, that is so true to form. You, you want to know the data. <laughs> you don't care about the invitation. What is the data showing us? I'm always happy well, yeah. to help Zev. I'm just trying to protect you from having well, a, the, well, get through. Well, Len, I, you know what I need? I need some data analysts to work with I me. Agree. So <laughs> I know somebody that can help with that. Do you know somebody? Yes, I think I might. Well, I, you know, I got I got to walk the walk. You know, I mean, you you gave a call to action, and I want to dive in with you. I want to hire some. Uh, now, I, I'm not sure I could pay them, but uh, what they deserve. But um, I definitely want to hire them. So anyway, this has been unbelievably delightful conversation uh, again i think for the for the listeners and and the folks who are listening to this podcast and i, I think you'll, you'll agree with me it's just uh, it's so inspiring and refreshing to listen to len and to learn from him and to talk with them and again you can hear more of len uh if you google him and go online uh, he's got uh, i think on the harvard site or on the sift your sift site you have some of your uh, ted talks and other talks you've given and well worth it um, so Len, I want to thank you. And again, for the listeners, I, I just want to say, um, thank you for, for, uh, you know, participating in this. I wouldn't be doing this. Uh, we wouldn't be doing this if, if you weren't listening. And, and quite honestly, as Len said, you know, uh, we do look at, uh, who's listening and how much uh, it's being listened to and it keeps us going. So thank you. And thank you for the hard work you are all doing every day in terms of taking care of patients and trying to improve the care of patients. I think uh, just like Len, you are on a hero's journey as well. So, so Len, just want to say thank you. Uh, folks, say thank again, thank you. This is Zev Newerth. You've been listening to Creating New Healthcare, and I'm wishing you all uh, good health and good living.